Betsy with the Dickie Foundation, and you're listening to Dickie's Doing Good, the podcast where we tell good stories about good people doing good things in the community. I'm thrilled because my guest today is Irish Birch, who's the CEO of the Dallas Children's Advocacy Center, which she took over in early 2021. But she's no stranger to DCAC as she joined them as a forensic interviewer in 2003, growing her responsibilities and roles over 15 years to become the Chief Partner Relations Officer. She did a brief stint in Austin uh, to use her expertise to help Children's Advocacy Centers of Texas, but has now returned home to DCAC. Thanks so much for joining me today, Irish. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. So for those folks who don't know you quite as well as I do, uh, tell us about yourself, your work here at DCAC, and how you came to be where you are now. Oh, wow. What a loaded question. (laughs) Um, So here's why I always like to start when I introduce myself, because it tells the journey of how I got here. My core belief is the fact that I believe every child should be safe in their home. The reality is they are not. And so I started my journey into the child abuse field long before I ever went to college. My mom uh, had a history or worked in the field of child protection. She did not want this uh, for me absolutely at all, begged me to major in something else <laughs> when we went to, when I was getting ready to go off to college. And I actually lied to her and told her, oh, okay, I'm going to major in psychology and counseling and I'm going to do something that is not related to this. I will figure out something else to do. Whatever These were her exact words. Whatever you do, don't major in social work. Okay, well, I won't. I won't do that at all. (laughs) Knowing that I had the full intention of coming out and still pursuing this work. And so needless to say, that literally is what happened. I went off to college. I came out of college knowing that child abuse was my passion and that it was what I was going to dedicate my life to. I started this journey actually at uh, with the state as a child protective services investigator. So I worked there for eight and a half years, was introduced to the CAC model when I was working a sexual abuse investigation. I had to go to the CAC in order to observe a forensic interview and I was like, what is this? What is this thing where a person gets to come into the room, bond with the child and gather information from them and literally not have to do all the other things I had to do as a CPS uh, investigator. And I, within a couple of weeks, they had a position open. I applied for a forensic interview, a forensic interviewer position. And lo and behold, Literally, here I stand, <laughs> several, <laughs> several years, many different roles and obligations throughout those years. But it is a, a journey that I appreciate and I absolutely would not exchange anything for it. Well, that is remarkable. And I love that you've spent so many years uh, with DCAC. That, yes. that is fantastic. So for, for folks who kind of don't under, understand what the Child Advocacy Center model is and what you all do exactly, they know mm-hmm. that you help children, but talk to us a little bit more about, about what you all do. So the best way to describe it is to really help people to understand that it is a child-friendly atmosphere that children come to once there have been severe allegations of child abuse that rise to the level of a criminal offense. Once those allegations have been made, there is a coordinated multi-team disciplinary approach that we take to investigate in these cases. So DCAC in partnership with law enforcement, prosecution, the mental health community, as well as um, the medical community, pediatric medical community, we work hand in hand to ensure that families are no longer trying to figure out 
who I need to talk to, what's going to happen in my case, what is the process going to look like, what parts have I missed, have I done everything I'm supposed to do. It is our responsibility to provide that coordinated approach to these cases so that no family falls through the crack. And once they come here, they full, they receive that full holistic um, package of services from investigation to prosecution to the healing services that those families need. So that's the best way to describe it. Well, and you talk about, and you started your career as forensic investigator, forensic interviewer, yes. um, and really investigation. And, you know, people think about law enforcement investigations and being in a tiny room and someone yelling across the, the room. Obviously, that's not what you all are doing here. You, you have children. So talk to me about kind of what happens when a case is referred to you all and how you all are helping and and really how this is very different than, than dealing with adults. So the, the probably the best way to understand how the cases happen now is to kind of un- understand what happened before you had the CAC model. Mm -hmm. So just to give you a real quick snippet of that, before you had the CAC model, what would happen, even as I was a CPS worker, you would receive a referral to child abuse. And then as a CPS investigator, you may go out to the home, interview that child, gather that information. Law enforcement receives that same report. Patrol may come out to the home, interview that child. They refer it to a detective. Detective gets the case, interviews that child. Child goes in for medical exam. Medical provider gathers information that they need for the medical treatment. And then case gets ready for trial. Prosecution is gonna gather more information. So as you can probably imagine, from those different disciplines interviewing that child, you're gonna have four or five different types of stories. Well, and really re-traumatizing a child. Absolutely, absolutely, 100%. That child was charged in telling that story over and over again. And based on your discipline or your specialty, you are going to ask questions that you need to gather in order to further your investigation. Child Protective Services is assessing safety in the home. Law enforcement is trying to lock the perpetrator up. Medical is trying to determine your medical needs. And so by the time these cases got to court, defense attorneys would have a field day. That child had to be mine. They told the CPS worker one thing, told law enforcement something else. They used one term in one way to describe a private part. Then they used another term to describe it in another way, or it was written a certain way in a police report. And so it, did exactly what you said, traumatized the child after having to tell that story over and over again. So with your CAC model, what happens now is a child makes that outcry of abuse. Our mandated and our primary reporter is usually going to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. So child goes to school, child tells teacher. Because our teachers are trained in our particular specific curriculum, they understand they are not to interview the children. They are to gather that information and they are to make the referral. Now that referrals comes in with law enforcement and CPS jointly, as well as the CAC, because you have three different people reviewing this information. No one is going out and interviewing the child. That child is brought to the CAC and a forensic interviewer interviews that child, gathers that information in a a setting and an environment that is very conducive to what that child needs at that moment. It is developmentally appropriate. It is non-leading. It is gathered in a way to where you will be able to then take that information and be able to get the child the justice that they need. All while those investigating parties are watching. So no more everyone interviewing the child. They are hearing the information at the same time. They have the ability to ask questions for clarification. 
and then ensure that they get the information they need in order to take it and then determine what needs to happen in their individual disciplines. Once that child has been interviewed, then we also have a family advocate team that is here working with that family, here to ensure that because that child and that family they're gonna see four or five or a few different people that day. You might have to talk to the CPS worker, law enforcement. When they go to the hospital, they'll have to talk to someone differently, but not about the case, but more so about here's how we're gonna transition you through the system. But that family advocate is that core piece of person, that core piece of the investigation that holds everything together and is the face that that family remembers. They're the one that's checking in with the family. They're the one that is ensuring that the family then gets signed up for their medical exam. They get signed up for their clinician, not clinician, I'm sorry, their mental health uh, treatment in order to ensure that, okay, we've gathered the information that we need from an investigative standpoint, but that's not enough. It is not enough just to give the information to stop the abuse, but now what parameters, what treatment, what resources do we need to ensure that you have in order to ensure that you now are on the journey to healing? If we remove the main breadwinner from the home, how are you going to pay your bills? How can we ensure that you have all the resources that you need in order to take you through what is a very traumatic and can be a very traumatic time in someone's life? And we need to ensure that we're providing holistically all of the services that the family needs and that family no longer has to try to piecemeal it and figure it out alone in isolation as they go through this process. You all are such an incredible resource here for, for those families and really for those children. That That's remarkable. And kind of speaking of families, it's it's a family legacy for you. <laughs> you said your mother uh, was involved in social work uh, and and that sort of thing, and that you, you had to lie to her to tell her you, you weren't, yeah. weren't going to go into this. So so why, why did she not want you to, to do to do this kind of work? Um, because what you know when you've been in this work is hard. Mm -hmm. It is difficult. Uh, the content that you hear, and I'll tell you, it's probably, I think, my gosh, has it been like almost 27 years from the time I started at CPS to now? And you learn very quickly, especially once I started at the Advocacy Center, you learn not to say, oh, we've seen it all, we've heard it all, because I, I guarantee you there is something that always comes and it rocks you to your core. And for me, I just feel like she knew what she experienced and she didn't, she know I'm a sensitive soul. And I think she worried about how I would deal with the content, but it is, it is as stressful as someone can think it is. However, it is also the most humbling, rewarding job I have ever had in my life, specifically as a forensic interviewer. I can remember so many times when I would meet family members and they are going through their trauma. They've just learned that their child has made an outcry and not only an outcry of abuse, but they've made an outcry against someone that is not a stranger someone that that child knows, someone that that trusts. So you have all of these mixed emotions going on. And so, so many parents like my child, you know, they told me, but they're not gonna feel comfortable talking to anyone else about this. And so when you get into an interview room after you've met a child, 
for the very first time. And you build rapport with that child to where that child trusts you enough within less than 15 minutes to tell you something that they probably swore that they would never tell another living soul, that they are telling you something that they felt like they would always keep a secret and that they are unfortunately might be ashamed of. When somebody decides that you are the person they want to share that with, it is your responsibility to pick up that burden and help that family through that process. To tell that child, I understand, I am here, I am going to help you. That is the honor, that is the that is the thing that makes you come back. That is the thing that keeps you from being sad when children share horrific things. But when you see them and they've had the resources and they have rebounded and they're doing better than you are, those are the things that keep you coming back. So my mom just was being a protective mom. <laughs> she wanted what was best for me, but I am grateful. She has been supportive this whole entire time, but I am grateful that I knew where my heart lies. And you have the support and the resources, not only for the family, but that you need in order to sustain in this career for so long. Well, your mom must be so proud of you now. She is. She is. <laughs> she is. <laughs> oh, good. So, I mean, your child investigator, your, your forensic interviewers and your child investigators, I mean, that 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 is a very special Oh, for very special people mm -hmm. that, that are doing that. How how would someone go about getting into that line of work if they feel a calling to, to help children in this way? So for our family advocates, you normally majority of our staff members, you're gonna have a social work background. So literally it is having that passion and being able to search out those uh, places or those avenues where child advocacy resonates with you. There are so many different ways that you can get involved with helping children. When you want to specifically be a forensic interviewer and gather that type of information and be a part of that investigative uh, process, that is training. A lot, I will tell you a lot of our backgrounds, they come from social work, uh, degrees in criminal justice, psychology, counseling, that type type of um, um, social background, but then you also have a lot of people that come over from CPS like I did from uh, myself, but your training specifically you receive once you are actually in the role. So there is specific training that our forensic interviewers go through in order to really understand how to assess the developmental of a, a developmental level of a child, how to ask questions in a way that encourages conversation and does not stifle it. And it does not lead a child to say something that you don't want them to say. So training for forensic interviewing, you're gonna be able to get on the job, but as long as you're coming with a passion and a heart and you have that degree in a social service background, you will be able to work in majority of your CACs around the country. Very good. So um, what is the best thing for you about being with DCAC? Oh my gosh. If you would have asked me that before I left. So when I left DCAC in 2017, I was the chief partner relations officer. And because my job was to manage our multidisciplinary team, so all of the different law enforcement agencies, child protective services, uh, medical health prosecution, really making sure that they, in conjunction with DCAC, when you have 39 different partners, you're going to have 39 different sets of policies and <laughs> procedures, SOPs. And so it was my goal and my focus to ensure that we all stayed 
focus on that common goal. And that is taking care of that child, taking care of that family and their needs. And when you have child abuse, you're gonna have a lot of passion. So what I'll tell you at that time, the best part of my job was being able to ensure that we worked in the way that enhanced the lives of children and families. We, I was responsible for ensuring that we brought the MDT together in a way that our families were able to benefit and not be re-traumatized over and over again. We worked more efficiently by ensuring that we're collaborating and communicating and ensuring that the case is moving in the way that it needs to. And I will tell anybody there is nothing better than a CAC model when the model works like it's supposed to. You cannot investigate these cases in any other manner. And that goes from our cases that we see in regards to primarily sexual abuse, severe physical abuse, witnesses to homicide, uh, sex trafficking cases, all of those cases are handled in that manner. Now, if you ask me today in this current role, then what I would tell you is after coming back, when I left DCAC, I would have never imagine that I was coming back in this capacity. I was just as happy as a little bird somewhere minding my own little business. I actually had even thought when we moved to Austin, we moved, I moved to Austin with the, for the reason why you said in order to ensure that I was able to provide additional support to the rest of the CACs around the state of Texas. But we came back right before COVID because I'm a grandmother. And so my son had my first grandbaby. Oh, we yes. moved back, we relocated. And I literally was at the point of the crossroads of saying, do I want to stay in child abuse? Is this the time for my career to end? Is it time? I'm still I'm turning 50 this year, but I still feel like I can do a lot of things. And I was like, is it time to start something new? So when this opportunity came about, I was just still minding my business. And I was like, nope, <laughs> don't want to start. I'm not going to go back there. And I was like, do I want to go back there? What am I going to do? And so in this current capacity, I will have to say that the joy and the thing that I love the most is the fact that now I'm not responsible for being on the actual front lines. I'm not responsible for managing the MDT, for interviewing the children, but I get the honor of being responsible for taking care of the people that do. I get the honor of being the person that's responsible for pouring into our staff members, ensuring that they have the resources, ensuring that they feel like they get to come to work and do what they do best every single day. That's the joy that I get because I'm just one person. I could only service so many partners. I could only interview so many children. But my goodness, with the amount of staff members and partners that we have here, if I can pour into someone who then pours out into another, that pours out into another, then that that is all the reward and all the joy that I need. That's remarkable. And I love that you, you call it an honor to be able it to is, help them. It that, is truly an honor. That is it. You know, so you mentioned COVID and you took over and we're, <laughs> oh goodness, we're still in COVID. Please get your vaccines, people. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we, we're still, I mean, Delta, Delta is back with a vengeance. Delta and, is, yeah. you know, talk, talk to me, I mean, that you all do a lot of in-person mm -hmm. counseling, whether, whether it's interviews, whether it's family services, things like that. How did COVID affect you all here? 
So I came right in the process. So they were in COVID before I got here, but they never closed their doors. Our doors remained open the entire time. As with everyone, we had to figure out a way how to pivot, how to adjust. What we know is that child abuse does not stop because there was a global pandemic. And to be perfectly honest, what you recognize is during a time where everyone was so concerned about children being uh, not being having access to school, education, food and nutrition and valid, valid concerns. And we should be concerned. There is an additional factor that a lot of people don't realize that our community, the child uh, protection professionals, we were in sure panic because what we knew is that not only is that child not gaining access to the education and the nutrition that they need, but this child is being locked in the house all day with their abuser. There is no place of safety for them. There is no trusted adult that they can say, someone is hurting me in my home. So we actually saw a decline in child abuse reports during that time. Right. I had heard about that when I talked with Tony Sutton from Child Protective yes. Investigations. And it sounds like a good thing, but it's a terrible thing because uh, my background, I, I was previously with the preschool for five years. And mm -hmm. as that, we were required to by the state to be reporters. And so if you had any suspicion of it, you automatically had to report it to the mm -hmm. authorities and so you you just you didn't have teachers reporting it because they weren't seeing these children in person on a mm -hmm. daily basis exactly exactly and so whereas you saw majority of the child abuse reports go down there was one particular allegation and i'm sure she probably talked to you about this where there was a spike there was an increase in cases and it was the uh, physical abuse cases we saw so many more physical abuse cases because again think about the stressors being in the home Parents are losing jobs. Everybody's in one space. There were a higher number of severe physical abuse cases during that time than what we were normally accustomed to. So at DCAC, what we had to do is figure out how do we safely ensure that our staff members can be present while ensuring that when families came in, they are also safe as possible and ensuring that we're given the services that our partners need. So we went to what a lot of people went to. We sent majority of our staff members home, those that didn't have the frontline exposure or uh, frontline access to clients and then put our frontline access uh, client, uh, staff members on a rotating basis. So just to really trying to minimize the traffic, we put the wait, uh, for an example, in waiting rooms, we tried to schedule only one family at a time or try to keep them from overlapping, sanitizing the rooms throughout each individual time. So interviews continue to happen in person. Family advocacy would happen in person, sometimes virtually if needed. Our clinicians and our mental health department, we did pivot and do majority of our care from a telemental health standpoint. Because again, so many people coming in and out of the building at that point in time, at the initial beginning of COVID, you didn't have the vaccination option. So we were just trying to do what we could to keep everyone as safe as possible. Since then, and it's like you said, you know, we thought we were getting to a point where I'm like, okay, so we're coming the vaccines came and we're getting back to normal and, you know, children are going back to school and here comes Delta and I'm like, go away Delta. But we 
return to office full time for all staff members mid-July. And so that literally is everyone's in the building and we are continuing to ensure some telemental health is still happening uh, because we have some families that it worked great for. I was so, going to say, did it, the technology and, and doing that, did it help? Did it make it more accessible for some families? So it made it more accessible, but you also have to think about for some people, it presented greater challenges because some people are just not going to have the resources. Some of our demographics, or if you think about it, they might just have one computer. You're using that computer for work, you're using that computer for school, and now you need to use that computer for a telemental health session. So that has presented challenges. Sometimes people actually don't have internet. And so we've tried to do a couple of things to ensure that those people who have internet, but don't necessarily have the uh, technology uh, equipment, we have loaned out laptops, given uh, uh, loaned out iPads and given them that opportunity to still uh, have access to those services. Some families continued to come in. So what we did is make sure that we truly assessed a family and their critical needs and ensure that we prioritize getting them in if they could not do telemental health. And again, some people are thriving in that space. Some people want to only actually come in person. So now what we do is we meet them where they're at. We assess and we figure out what's best for that family and what's going to keep us all as safe as possible, including uh, our clients that we serve. And then we just move forward from there. So right now we are now having the conversations again, like, okay, so do some people have to go back home in order to ensure that the people who have to be in the building are as safe as possible. I am excited to say that we just actually did a survey. A majority of our staff members are fully vaccinated. So from a safety standpoint and not getting into personal choices (laughs) from a safety standpoint, based on research, it helps me to feel a little bit calmer. Uh, but we're still doing the things that we can with really high um, uh, sanitary processes, ensuring that we are double cleaning rooms and all of the different things to just kind of help eliminate another shutdown or going back home. So how can, so you're, you're helping a lot of people here at DCAC. How can people help DCAC? That is the question I love to hear. (laughs) So because people think, oh, you know, child abuse, that's so big. I can't do anything about child abuse. And really what I would love to help people to understand is when you think about the dynamic of child abuse, what you think about or what you need to know is that child abuse thrives in a level at a level of isolation and in a place of secrecy. The best defense that we have and the community has in regards to combating this issue is education. It is understanding and recognizing how and what to do when you see something happening. It is not just our responsibility to take care of our children, take care of our families. It is our responsibility to take care of all of our children in Dallas County. And the more you can educate yourself on what children are doing, what is happening, how to recognize and see that a child who was once vibrant is now withdrawn, a child who has bruises in a place that it should not be, a child who is really was a straight A student and has now really just really um, gone back and their grades are failing and they're really withdrawn really understanding that something is going on and we owe it to those children to be 
responsible for understanding how to identify it and how to respond to it. So you can, we have all of the resources that you would need to be able to take courses on recognizing and reporting child abuse. We also would love to, for people to understand that one of the best ways, again, in isolation and secrecy, that perpetrators gain access to our children is through this digital world. With every kind of app, with every kind of thing that they can get, the chat rooms, things that they can get their hands on. And so really understanding how you can protect your children from a digital standpoint. People and parents sometimes want to be their children's friends and they don't want to invade privacy. But what you have to understand is perpetrators thrive on that fact. Perpetrators thrive on the belief that you're not going to ask your child for their password and that they have this connection with your child that they're that they are eliminating you from. So being having that relationship with your child to where you know what chat rooms they're in, you know the things that they're uh, doing online and you know the conversations that you're having and you're talking to them about what people try to do. People want to really be more concerned about stranger danger and stranger danger is a concern, but it is not the person that is hiding in the alley. It is not the person that's wearing a trench coat or looks really weird that's gaining access to our children. It's the person that looks like you and me. It is the person that looks like my husband, my brother. It is the person that is nice. It is the person that is welcoming. It is the person that is trying to convince you that they're okay so they can gain access to your child. So we have to be aware that these things are happening. And then we have to know that it is our responsibility and we can do something about it. It's not just for the child abuse professionals. We all have an ability to save our children. Well, and to that effect, I mean, the child abuse that is happening is generally a family member or someone that is known to that child. Absolutely. It's not stranger danger. We it talk about stranger not. danger and that's important, but mm -hmm. but it's someone that the family knows. It is someone that's that scary. the family knows and it's someone that the family trusts. So you have to really be aware and educate yourself. If you're a mandated reporter, like you mentioned earlier, if you are a teacher, if you're a doctor, if you're in any profession where you are responsible for the care of children, really ensuring that you understand this process. It's not in a lot of people, oh, it's not my business. I don't want to get involved. It is. It child is. safety, a child's life, it's your business. It is. Okay. And, and you're and you you are doing incredible work and in helping helping so many children, helping so many families. Who are two or three people who really helped you and made a difference for you personally? Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, of course I would say my mom. Absolutely. Um two or three people that have helped me. Oh my goodness. Um that's a good question. I don't know why I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> I have to think about, um, I have to, if I'm gonna be really honest, I actually have to think about um, two young ladies um, that I forensically interviewed. Um, one throughout my career, they really, I had, been an interviewer for a number of years. I was actually the supervisor at this point in time. And what you will know in this field is after you've been doing this for a while, I think anyone in this field will tell you, you always have that one case. 
you always get that one case that changes your life. And it was two females that I had interviewed after their mother and their siblings uh, had been murdered at the hands of their stepfather. And the resiliency that I saw in these girls after the most horrific things, if you, after being in this field for this many years, if you sit here today and say, what is the worst thing that you could absolutely come up with what you've seen or what you heard or what you can imagine? I could not have comprehended or made up the things that they had to endure throughout this time of their abuse. And so I was struggling. I was struggling. I'm like, I don't want to do this. I think that, and this was midpoint of my career. I don't think that this is for me anymore. I was having a hard time and my team recognized that I was having a hard time and the girls had been coming in. They were in treatment. They were in uh, receiving all of the services that we offer. And so one day they came in to the center and the uh, their therapist came upstairs and said, hey, I need you to come downstairs. So I came downstairs and I saw the girls and I was so overjoyed and we embraced and all these different things. And they were so lively and so amazing and thriving, absolutely thriving. And I walked away from that experience and was like, oh my gosh, they are doing better and coping and excelling and on their journey to healing much better than I am. And it didn't even happen to me. And what that made me recognize is the fact of, what we do works. What I'm getting choked up. <laughs> what we do here at the center is life changing. And it changed my life. Those two girls changed my life. And it was from that period that I said I would never look back. I would never do anything differently as long as I have breath in my body. As long as I am working, my call and my mission is to ensure that children are safer in their homes, to ensure that women and children and non-offending parents have the resources to know that there is hope after they're hurt. I'm so sorry. No, I mean, this is an incredible story. And just resilience, that that to me, I think we're talking about those girls and they embody resilience and, and you so clearly embody resilience. That happened at a midpoint in your career. And you said, I'm, I'm going to keep doing this. And this is why I'm going to keep doing it because it works, because you are making such a difference for so many children, families, non-offending parents. It just, it, it is incredible. It is incredible work that you all are, are doing here. I, I, I can't thank you enough for what you do for, for our community. And I've, I've got to ask you, if, if there was a question I should have asked you, but I haven't <laughs> asked you yet, what, what should it be? Well, you, you have absolutely <laughs> asked me everything you need to. I will tell you that outside of education and outside of being able to look at the resources we have, we would also love for people to visit our website and find out ways that you can volunteer, find out ways that you can donate. There is nothing too small that you can't do. There is nothing too small that you can't give. We absolutely need to be able to continue to do the things that we do. And we do that with the support of generous community members.
At the end of our interviews, we always flip it a little bit back to Dickie's, so I've got to okay. ask, favorite Dickie's meat, favorite Dickie's side? Uh, favorite Dickie's meat would be um, actually turkey. The, okay. the smoked turkey. And that's probably surprising to people. I went on a diet at one point in time and was buying the turkey by the pound. <laughs> and I literally would eat on it all uh, week. I am not a huge sides person, but I will tell you, I am really... Um, obsessed with the pickles, onions. Like, it, I know that it's so weird, but I am obsessed with eating that and order that in more excess than what I probably should. All right, you win. I've never had those answers given, especially not together. Wow, that's amazing. All right, so we always go and we finish up with our lightning round. I'm gonna give you two choices and you're gonna give me your favorite. Okay, okay. Okay, barbecue beans or jalapeno beans? Uh, barbecue beans. Sweet tea or unsweet tea? Neither, I don't like tea. Okay, all right, but you'll get your big yellow cup because it supports first responders, right? Absolutely. <laughs> all right, chopped brisket or sliced brisket? A chopped. Uh, sauce or no sauce? Sauce, all day. <laughs> That's a lot of sauce there. <laughs> brisket or pulled pork? Pulled pork. And ribs or wings? Ribs. She is a rib queen all about it, y'all. Thank you so much today. My guest today has been Irish Birch, who's the CEO of the Dallas Children's Advocacy Center. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for everything that you do for children and for families and for our city. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity and thank you, thank you so much for what you do. Like all of the additional support that you do for first responders, absolutely. We, it just, it, it has to not go unnoticed. You guys are doing amazing work and I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. It takes all sorts of great partners just like you. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. It was great that we could share our stories with you. If you want more information about the Dickey Foundation, feel free to visit thedickeyfoundation.org. And if you want more information about some of our great owners and the great stories they're doing, please visit dickies.com. We look forward to seeing you next week where we'll continue sharing the good stories of good people doing good things in our community.